Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Elisa Stolman, and I'm a staff writer at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Kim Ann Foxman, whose relationship with dance music began in the 1990s. She raved as a teenager in Honolulu, Hawaii, and witnessed the last gasp of San Francisco's freewheeling rave scene. But when she followed love to New York City in 2002, she found a club scene in retreat as electro clash and dance rock defined the cultural moment. Ironically, Foxman first became known not as a DJ, but as the vocalist in Hercules and Love Affair, a popular New York band led by Andy Butler. The affiliation proved hard to shake after she left to start her career as a solo artist. But now it's safe to say that Foxman is known as a producer, DJ, and label owner in her own right. She came by RA's Berlin office to tell us about how she became known for her true self, a deeply knowledgeable and extremely fun producer and selector. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. The exchange with Kim Ann Foxman is up next. Hello. Hey, so let's start this uh, interview, this conversation by, can you just tell me a little about your childhood, where you grew up, and your musical upbringing as well? I grew up in Honolulu, Hawaii. Um, I feel really lucky to grow up there. I wasn't very musical as a child besides my mom would try to get me to sing. My mom's side of the family is very musical. And... We had a talent show once. We went to the Philippines. My mom's from the Philippines. And she made me sing The Greatest Love of All by Whitney Houston when I was a kid. And I cried because I didn't want to be singing it. I wanted to break dance with my cousin. But that was one of my star moments as a child. (laughs) Did she bring you up on old soul and R&B? She was really into like stuff that was cool on the radio at the time she was really into like in vogue and she was into like I remember when I was younger she was into the fat boys (laughs) (laughs) and um she liked pretty modern music I would have to say my dad was more into Simon and Garfunkel and my dad was a hippie from Woodstock so he was really into um this kind of thing yeah He's not from Woodstock, but he went to the Woodstock Festival. Was um was music 
did that play a big role in your life growing up or did that come later? It did play a big role in my life um, because I really loved to dance as a kid. And so what I really would get so excited for was a school dance or like a district dance. I was really a music fan, I would say, and I never thought that I would be in the music industry, but here I am. <laughs> Loving to dance is certainly a good quality for a DJ. It is, um, yeah. I would imagine, and this is a question, so just correct me if I'm wrong, um, that the there's not so much live music from international touring acts. It would be mostly local because it's quite far out. Is it is. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. It was mostly, you know, the popular music there at the time was mostly in, in person. If you were going to go see a show, it was, you know, reggae or Hawaiian or there was a, a combination of the two called Jawaiian. But really big acts would come. Like you had to be huge to make it to Hawaii because there's um, it's so far away, and so. Do you know if there's anything there now? Like, have you ever played in Hawaii since? Have I played in Hawaii? Yeah, there's actually an after hours club there that I have played at called Asylum. There's definitely some stuff as far as dance music goes, but you know, it's small. It's a small community. But growing up, um, my outlet for music was through television. So I would just stay up and watch MTV and VH1. And like, that was like my porthole into like this whole other world that I didn't see in Hawaii. And then it wasn't until later when I was in high school in like about 1992, somebody gave me like a 100% kicking techno compilation cassette tape. And so that was the first time I had heard anything like that. And it was kind of like cheesy, but good. <laughs> and um, at that time, I was blown away. I was like, this is, this is awesome. This is so crazy. And like, I didn't hear anything like that. My only, um, you know, outlet for dance music was what was on the radio before that. And it was, you know, Technotronic would have been the closest thing to club music that I had, that I had known technotronic and like cnc music factory and these pop acts um which i was super into but latin freestyle music was really popular in hawaii and that was that had like you know electronic beats so i was i was always into the i was into dance music and like um miami electro and like this kinds of sounds were there um, any raves in hawaii back in the 90s oh yeah, there was. So actually, yeah, I was going to get to that. I, I got introduced to like techno and house music. And when I, a couple years later, there was um, someone took me to my first rave. Where was it? It was in Hawaii in this warehouse. And it was like in a very industrial area. Yeah, that was the first time I had been to a rave. I think it was like 1994 or something. And after that, I was like totally sucked into a whole new world that I was like, I totally like this is my jam. Like I want to I want to explore it more. And so I started going out and I was, you know, sort of like a person in the little scene there. And then but my mom was really strict. So I'd always have to like say, oh, I'm sleeping at 
um, my best friend Kyoshi's house or I'm sleeping at Tiffany's house or whatever to, to go out to these things. But I got smart and I got I got a job at a, at a club while I was in high school. So I was... How did they hire a high school student at a nightclub? <laughs> I don't know. It's pretty crazy. I was working the non-alcoholic bar. So I was... Okay. Yeah. I was making like rave smoothies and serving soda, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's how I started getting to stay out late. And um, a lot of DJs from California would come through there because that's pretty much mostly who would come through Hawaii was California DJs. That was pretty cool because I, you know, my mom was so strict, but I had found this loophole. And during school nights, even I'd get to work at this club and it was, I was being responsible. Yeah, that's a very smart life hack. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) So what was the next step then? The next step was, you know, I had heard that there was a great scene in San Francisco. And were you already familiar with uh, some of the people who were involved in that scene in San Francisco because they came out to Hawaii? Um, I had known of, you know, like like some of the DJs that would come through, but um, I had no idea how big it was and like how how crazy San Francisco was really going off at that time. And so I chose to go to school, to college, apply for college in San Francisco. Yeah, I went I went to college in San Francisco my first weekend there. I went to um, a sunset party, which is done by my friends uh, Solar and Galen. And that was like the first, yeah, that was the first party I went to. And it I just like really just dove into the scene from there and I just was like a total raver for years. <laughs> that um so we're talking about what year did you move to San Francisco? I moved in 1995. Okay, so at that point it we were still 10 years out f- at least from tech really settling in there and I yeah. think we had 10 years before some or 10 vital years of change happening. Yeah. Sort of the twilight of a certain era in San Francisco. It was. Um, Can you tell me about Solar's Party Sunset? Like what kind of music was played there? Who went there? Um, Where it it happened even? They would happen. um, It was always free and it would happen outside on like, usually it was like, near a body of water, like in the Bay Area. Sounds chilly, to be honest. (laughs) It would get chilly, yeah. Um, And it, you know, it was during the daytime on a Sunday, and you call up a number to get the location the day of, and then they give you the directions, and then you go on this adventure to get there. And then the music was really good. The music that was going on in San Francisco at that time is is the music that that inspired me. It's pretty eclectic and that's what I liked about San Francisco but there was definitely like a certain vibe that is like very SF and I think Solar is like the perfect definition of like the type of DJ and what was going on at at that time for me that was inspiring me yeah and Wicked Crew yeah. Right. I also wanted to talk about Wicked. Did you go to those parties as well? Oh, yeah, totally. So can you tell us a little about uh, the kind of people who went to Wicked and the music that you heard there and the vibe there and why it was an important party in San Francisco? Yeah, it was it was just like 
I don't know. It's 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 hard to describe, but it's what I really loved about it is that it was sort of like you know it was underground dance music, but you could kind of really like mix it up with other stuff. And that's sort of the the type of DJ that I am. I don't stick with like one genre or anything. And I was like a mega Garth fan, and um, so and he can play all across the board as Solar can and just play everything really well. It could be house music to some early like wonky obscure records to to anything. Like I don't know. I just really like the 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 style that was happening with the Wicked Crew and it could get like super deep and it could get like you know it was for me it was like the best music for a party and the type of you know party favors that were going around at that time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How much of an influence did Burning Man play on the style of music that people were playing in San Francisco? Because uh, Burning Man has a specific legacy of bass nectar is a great example of this someone who was working with sort of garagey and two-step sounds and then there was also a west coast break scene happening around that time yeah and uh eventually the style that was big at burning man sort of became more closer to like chill edm dubstep in a way like pretty lights or something it's it's funny because i don't really like the years I did go to Burning Man, but the last time I went was 1998-1999. And at that time, I didn't really like the music that was happening there. I just went because it was like, oh, let's go to this thing. It's totally crazy and weird, and I hadn't been to anything like that before. But almost every single thing that was happening there was psychedelic trance. It was really hard for me to find music that I liked. I thought the artwork installations were totally awesome and mental but like I didn't connect with the music that was happening except for I found a couple camps that I really liked and one of them was um The Gathering who's another great party in San Francisco very burner name <laughs> yeah but it was the music was 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 not psychedelic trance it was very uh it was more like a sunset party vibe like that the music that would happen there and it was really, really, um, that music was like the, the one place that I just hung out when I went. So I don't really know because I haven't been back since then. Um, but that's what was going on at that time that I was there. But um, it didn't feel like the scene in San Francisco at large was was uh, very influenced by what was going on at Burning Man then. Something like Wicked oh, or there- Solar's Party would have felt very uh, separate from that. In a way, yes, but everyone kind of o- overlapped. Like, you know, at Raves at that time, there was a huge, like, Goa trance scene. There was a huge, like, the rave scene there, you would hear everything from, it was really across the spectrum from, like, house to, you know, acid house to techno to really ravey stuff to, to breakbeat trance to you know, Deep House, which is a different Deep House than the, the, to me, than the definition that it is today. It wasn't Big Room, you know, it was just like, you would hear all of these things at raves and stuff. And like, you know, the Goa Trans people would come to these parties and, you know, there'd be 
sometimes there would just be different rooms for things happening or everyone was just pretty open-minded. But there was so much happening. There were so many options to go to in one night. You would have like all these ray flyers. So there was literally like different scenes. So the, the one that I was in, it was less of the whole psychedelic trance scene. Although when I listened back to some of my rave tapes, I'm like, whoa, this is really like progressive house trancey. Like this is really fast and really like, you know. Yeah. So there was a huge Burning Man influence in San Francisco, but there were just so many options and so many pockets that like you could literally choose. Like there was a whole scene for happy hardcore. There was a whole scene for psychedelic trance. There was a whole like, you know, I remember when drum and bass first happened when it came to San Francisco and it it felt like, whoa, this whole new scene, that's a drum and bass scene. But then, and it seemed so unexpected like we had to oh like how do you dance to this this is like you know it's like unpredictable you know and then now it sounds predictable because it's in like car commercials and we're so used to it now but back then it was like a whole new movement there was just so many little pockets within that um within san francisco you could just pick and choose what your favorite genre was and go to a party just for that so you mentioned that you went to Burning Man as well. I did, yeah. Okay, what yeah. years did you go to Burning Man? I went to Burning Man 1998 and 1999 was the last time I went. Which which year was better? The first year I had I was on this pretty sober kick and I was still blown away cuz I had partied a lot and then it was like, "Oh, I'm just going to be I'm going to be chill." And I was still totally blown away when I found good music. And the artwork was really cool. I remember like Perry Farrell was like camping near us or something. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Um, It was pretty it wasn't the same thing that it is now at all. From what I can see, there wasn't any performances that, you know, that you would know, like, okay, go here at this time. This is going to happen. It was just like you're always missing everything because it's just you're just rolling with it. And um the second year, I had a lot more fun because I was not sober. <laughs> um, I had like fallen asleep in like this. I went into this party early and it was this like gay party. And then someone found me on the couch, like totally slumped over, like totally asleep, basically in this gay man orgy. <laughs> and they were like, <laughs> she was like, she woke me up and she was like, do you have any idea what's happening around you? <laughs> and I like looked up and I was like, hmm, everyone was connected. <laughs> and I was like, oh, and then I just went back to sleep. Um, but yeah, um, that that year was more wild for me just because I, I was more wild that year. And it was, um, yeah, it was super fun. Were you there for the whole week long or however long Burning Man is? Um, I wasn't there for the entire week, but I went like pretty early. I think I went maybe for like five days or something. It's oh, a long the, time still it's a to long be time. outside. Yeah. Oh, the first year I went, 1998, I basically saw this girl that I was like, oh my God, she's so beautiful and I got really like I need to find her I need to I rode my bike everywhere and um we talked and it was interesting because someone had I was like I was like oh my god she's so cute I want to I want to dance next to this girl and 
I think I was on mushrooms or something. And so I'm dancing. And then she like taps me on the on the shoulder and I turn around and she's like, Kim Ann? And I was like, oh, I thought it was like fate. I was like, what is happening in the desert? This person knows my name. It was like immediately in love. And um, then I couldn't find her all week. And I eventually ran into her in, in some tent and she was there with her girlfriend. And I was like, wah, wah. <laughs> but um, this person later uh, eventually they broke up. I wound up dating her in San Francisco for two and a half years. And this is the person I moved to New York for. Ah, okay. <laughs> okay. So yes, tell us about the move to, to New York. So the move to New York. Yeah, I, I was in love with my girlfriend at the time. And I followed her to New York. I had I had about nine credits left at my college to finish. And they were just like two sculpture classes and a library credit. But I couldn't take them all at the same time, which meant I'd have to be a whole year in San Francisco. And so I just was like, I'm in love. And I, I just quit. And I went to New York. I was so in love. And then I got dumped three days later. <laughs> <laughs> and now you have to stick to it and make it work. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, my gosh, what do I do? But we're best friends now. And so that's, it was all worth it. It was, I don't ever regret moving. Yeah. Had you already gotten involved in DJing before you moved to New York? Like you were getting involved in raving in San Francisco. Were you also involved in collecting music or playing music? I was um, actively from the, like the second I moved, I moved to San Francisco, I was collecting underground dance records that I would, um, you know, I was really, I was avidly collecting rave tapes. It was like a thing, you know, everyone was, had their rave tape collection and everyone, you know, was, was super into that. So I would collect records that were on my rave tapes and I'd search them out and I didn't know what a lot of them were. I'd like, you know, take my, my Walkman into the, to like BPM records in San Francisco and be like, what is this song? You know, and I would like try to find them. So I started my record collection in San Francisco and, and I still have a lot of, a lot of those records. Um, but I hadn't played records out, but I did get involved in a two man electronic band in San Francisco in the last, the last year, couple years that I lived in San Francisco, and we um, performed about 10 shows before I moved to New York. What kind of music? What was the name of the band? It was called 2-Bit, and it was like, I would say it was kind of like an indie electronic band. <laughs> and um, Very prescient. Yeah, and, um, you know, I had like this little like um, Roland sampler would just like trigger these samples. And then I had this like Korg synthesizer and I would do not really vocals, but very a little bit sort of vocals or talking or whatever. But that was my introduction to the production side of electronic music. Was that also your introduction to making music outside of singing was with electronic instruments? Or did you also learn to play the piano or something as a kid? Yeah. Um, I mean, no, I didn't really learn. Um, I, I tried to learn piano as a kid, but I had ditched it for karate. <laughs> um, that was the first time that I was sort of, you know, 
really exposed to the production side of and music in general, playing music. Yeah. So by the time you moved to New York, did you move with some of the records that you had collected in San Francisco? Oh, yeah. I moved with all of them. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> was it a big collection? Was it a big move? Or you were able to get it, it all in one? No, I was able to... Um, I had... At that time, it was really cool. I had... There was this weird freighting company that would... I, I moved my entire life from San Francisco to New York on a freighting... like airplane service i had a motorcycle even in there in this yeah, crate so three days in you were stuck there you couldn't just go back <laughs> yeah exactly i had like everything there i think i this crate cost me four hundred dollars and it had my whole life in there and then well the records i i sent media mail because it was cheaper and it took longer but um and I carried some with me, but I didn't have a I didn't have a massive collection at that time. But the stuff that I did have was really good, and I still they're still like my gems or like my little secret weapons that I have today. Nice, yeah, very good. So then um, you moved to New York. How did what kind of music stuff did you get involved with there? So the very and this is two thousand two, right? This is two thousand two. Right. Yeah, so. When I first moved to New York was the the first time, the within the first week before I had gotten dumped three days later, my girlfriend's roommate was dating Andy Butler. And um, so that's how I had met Andy. And then I got to play. I also got to play. Um, and we had bonded over, you know, we had got talking about the rave scene because I lived in San Francisco and he knew a lot of the same DJs. We talked about Wicked Crew. Um, and so we like totally were like, ooh, we're, we're vibing, you know? So that's how we became friends because he was hanging out at the same house. Um, and then I got to play my first DJ gig in Brooklyn um, where, I, where I played records out for the first time in front of people. And so that was... Um, it was a small little gig at this bar, but that was exciting. So that was the first time I started playing out. And then from there, I started playing out a lot. In that time, was cl the club scene still mostly concentrated in Manhattan? Um, It was definitely more so. Um, There was stuff happening in Brooklyn, but it was like um, a lot of it was in little bars and little spaces. And there were definitely parties in Brooklyn, but there were a lot more, I would say, better options in Manhattan compared to um, compared to now. Everything is happening in Brooklyn and vibe wise. Um, but there was more. It was a lot more going back and forth. Whereas today, like people in Brooklyn, like don't want to go out in Manhattan. They're like, I'm not going to Manhattan, you know. Yeah, it has a different vibe clubbing in Manhattan yeah, versus Brooklyn. For sure. Was Twilo still open when you moved to New York? No, it wasn't. Um, okay, so we were entering, because I think of Twilo as sort of the last um, gasp of a certain kind of New York club life that also, I mean, it's mirrored by, it was dying out in San Francisco too, and then we were entering an era of uh, where dance music was not so cool. Right. Well, in San Francisco, the dance music was always cool. And so when I moved to New York, I was quite disappointed because I was like, where do I go out here um, to listen to 
the kind of music that I that I'm used to going out to hearing. And in New York, it was really like the fall of Electro Clash, and it was um, going into dance rock. And the only like thing that was going on that was more like, you know, like housey, you know, was like body and soul, which was, you know, which is great, but it was very vocal heavy and it's a great party, but there wasn't much going on besides that. And I hadn't been able to go to the loft parties yet um, because I didn't have access to that. But so there wasn't really much, but there were small pockets of things that were, that would happen that were cool, but there was literally no crowd for it. And so, so that was hard. Everything was a lot more dance rocky at that time, but I started playing out a lot. And that's when I started, I would DJ like several times a week at just little parties around New York. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Like uh, clubs very, and like, bars. Yeah. Um, clubs and bars. A lot was like, um, you know, there was stuff in the Lower East Side and then I was, I was playing for like, um, just like a lot of little kind of parties. And then I basically started my own party at, um, which was at the hole, which was like this really raw space owned by the same owner as the cock. And <laughs> the cock is, um, is on second Avenue, right? The cock now is where the hole used to be. So the cock moved into the hole. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and the hole like... But uh, it, it is the place in the East Village, right? Yeah, it is. Okay. I think it moved again and it might be where Lit is now. I haven't been. So, but at one point the cock moved into the hole. But um, so the, yeah, the party at the hole was on second and second. It was very, very seedy, very raw. And I basically had some opportunity to start a party there. And so my friend worked there and he was like, oh, yeah, you could do you could do something there. We were looking for someone to throw a night, um, but you have to like run the whole night, like, you know, like promote it, do do the bar, decide if you want to cover or not, get the DJs or whatever. We had a very small the money for the DJs was a total of one hundred fifty dollars for all the DJs. So if you had three, everyone got fifty dollars, you know. So I decided to have a free party and I would make my money by bartending, getting the tips. So I would DJ early and then I would move to the bar and then just like run the party. And then I got my friends to play. And that's when I invited Andy to play. He was a resident DJ and Andy Butler and then some other friends. And it was the whole didn't have like like a more lesbian night. They didn't have any lesbian nights, so that was my that was my plan. I'm gonna run this. Like, that was the hole in their programming. Yeah, it was the party was called Mad Clams at the Hole, <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, <laughs> and so I had two weeks to promote it, and basically the hole was like a really hot spot at that time because it was one of the last places you could smoke in New York and you could get away with all this stuff. It was very dirty, literally. <laughs> and there was just nobody there to like oversee it. It was just whoever was running the party. Like the cash box was a Corona box <laughs> and there was no register. There was, um, you know, it was just like pretty unruly. And so, yeah, I had two weeks to promote this thing. I got it together and it was really easy because 
because the space was just so great. And then the first night was like super, super slammed. And Andy was playing. I played super early. Um, but yeah, we, the music that we were playing there was, you know, house music. Free. It was like very, it was pretty eclectic. Um, in But it was very dancey. It would be like, like a normal night would be like, you know, you'd hear some acid house. You'd hear some classic house mixed into like Latin freestyle mixed into like yellow you know so it was like you know it was but really good really good mix of music and yeah the whole party was super rammed and it was successful and then it was because it was free it sort of you know everybody came at that time in the states lesbians weren't really listening to that kind of music so I was just like, I don't really care. I'm going to play the music I like and they can like it or not, you know. And it wound up being great. And and people were, were you know, pretty open to it. Or they just went because it was cool. I don't know. <laughs> and I was giving away like half the bar. So people were, you know, pretty loaded. And you could get away with anything there, like literally anything. Um, and so that's why it was such a successful party. Yeah. I find that in Berlin, at least, although I do think there this applies to differing extents to other places, that dance music or club music can be odd bedfellows with uh, lesbian parties in right. particular, whereas like gay, it's not weird for a gay party to be a cool techno party. Right. Here in Berlin, a cool techno party is almost invariably a gay party. Right. Um, and that's not the case for uh, spaces f for lesbians, nights for lesbians or uh, clubs or parties. Um, right. And that you there's often nights f uh, or lesbian bars uh, that are popular. There are very few and they wouldn't have anything to do with partying or dance music. It would be like a normal bar night. Was that yeah. a hard? Did you find similar struggles? Oh, for sure. Um, at that time that was very very much the case and um you know lesbians were listening to it was rock and hip-hop and top 40 music so as i i experienced it also from being a dj because i would dj because i was you know because i am a lesbian people would book me for these lesbian things but then when i'd get there they wouldn't actually like the music that i play and they'd be like hey you know can you play something we can dance to I'm like i am <laughs> you know what i mean but they you know it's just it was just a different scene and it's you know meanwhile in paris um they had la pulpe which was like the best night was you know it's like run by the whole bar staff was a bunch of you know rad lesbians and dykes and it was just so cool and so you know it was just different maybe you know in Paris they were more open to it than they were in the states and it just took a really long time and so I did feel this you know this sort of like battle where I was like the weird raver and I would there I was in two different scenes um also in San Francisco, it was like I was in the rave scene, but then I would go to lesbian bars. But then at the lesbian bar, I was like the odd raver that was there. Mm -hmm. um, and I wasn't like punk rock enough and I wasn't, you know. So, yeah. And so at my party, 
we would play the music that I wanted to hear and people danced to it. I don't think that they necessarily liked it at that time, <laughs> but they got wasted and they dealt with it because there was, it was a great party and there was lots of people there. The other challenge that I noticed with lesbian parties is that it's hard to cultivate the kind of environment that you're describing where like anything goes and it gets dirty and crazy. Um, it can that there's less sex going on, I guess, is one element of it that adds this like illicit clandestine thing to when it's a gay party, it can be sort of like for straight people, an edgy thing that they're involved in. Right. But there's it's maybe not as safe for women to have sex in semi public places. Um, uh, there are probably a lot of structural reasons why it's uh, harder to cultivate an atmosphere of complete, you know, abandon and promiscuity um, when you're working, when you're trying to cater only to women. Um, since you were able to cultivate that kind of an environment, what, how did you do that? How did you nurture, like make a space where women felt comfortable taking their clothes off or doing whatever? Right. It was really, I didn't try to cultivate it. I just, it just sort of happened uh, organically. And I think a lot of it had to do with you know, the space at the time. And there, it, it sort of felt like this, one of the last places where it just, you know, there wasn't anybody there to say you can't do anything. So at that time, New York was really getting pressed for, you know, you can't smoke anymore. You can't, everything was getting kind of loungy, like nicer. And this was the last, like really not the last, but one of the one of the few last very dirty places. So it was, I think, probably exciting for people because it was different than anything that was happening at that time. I mean, it was the space itself was extremely physically, I mean, literally dirty. There'd be like cockroaches crawling out of the DJ mixer. <laughs> I feel like that would make it even harder to get women to relax. There. It would, but they would be so drunk and so <laughs> wasted because I was giving away the bar and people could do any of their party favors. They weren't even trying to hide it because there was nobody there to say you couldn't do it. So people were just, you know, kind of going bonkers. And um, it you know, eventually it was, it did turn into a very mixed party. I think that also added a lot to the party because at that time things weren't very mixed and it was mixed with, you know, it was lesbian heavy, um, but then there'd be gay boys that, that would come, but then there'd be some random straight hipsters, but then there'd be like some randoms off the street because it was free and like really, really random oddballs that were there that made it that sort of just added to the night added this cd sort of debauchery feeling to it all i don't know it's like the whole place was like just super crusty you know <laughs> and so i think in 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 any other sense you're right like you know it's not very sanitary <laughs> but at the same time everyone's so hammered and it was just a place where you would let your chickens fly <laughs> <laughs> so how long did this party run? It lasted for two years. Um, and when it closed, people were really bummed, but but it was closed on a on a high when you know when it was still at its high point, which is good because people have good memories of this party. And you know, 
We'd play like really weird videos there during the party um, that people remember. And we made our home, our own movies that would play like behind the DJ and stuff, which was really fun. But yeah, people remember this night and it was really hard to, they're like, oh, why don't you do one somewhere else? And I'd never tried to because it was really, for me, it was just happen organically with the space. And I never really tried on purpose to like, I never set out to, to, to make it what it was. It just happened. I just let it be whatever it was. And I also didn't take it very seriously. It was sort of this like, all the flyers were quite silly. I Everything that I put into it was just kind of silly and lighthearted. But I think I think that's what made it cool. I just let it be whatever it was. And the space sort of just let people, it sort of led the way. So I don't really want to take credit for it because I got lucky with the space. <laughs> um, but after that, I had a really hard time bartending around the city because I, I used to give away like one in every three drinks. And yeah, I could do that at other jobs. I'd get in trouble. So that kind of bartending wasn't fun for me after that. That's when I started DJing out a lot more was after um, after that party. Was this uh, was a lot of this in the meatpacking district? No, it was a lot in the Lower East Side at the time. The Lower East Side was was really the place to be. This would have been 2005, 2006? It was like 2000, I guess, even from when I moved there, 2002 to 2005, I would say was... Yeah, I was was I was I was predominantly hanging out in the Lower East Side um, and Williamsburg at that time when it was still not it was very different from what it is now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so little bars in Williamsburg and then little places in the Lower East Side. I would just like ride my bike between the two. Were you um, were you able to make your entire living off DJing a couple times a week in New York? I was um, DJing and bartending. So and then then I would pick up random freelance jobs I had about three jobs at one point as pulling it together but you weren't making money as a DJ as a local DJ in New York it was like oh here sometimes I'd show up with you know records and then you know it was sort of like a thing where the little party would make 10% of the bar so if no one came I was lucky to get my cab ride home which I had to take because of my records I didn't have the right. the trolley yet <laughs> the record trolley um, but yeah, so you know, I was making pretty crappy money. Venues didn't have the the money for DJs. Um, there wasn't a scene for it as much, unless you were some big club like maybe you know Avalon or um, CLO would bring in um, bigger DJs, and that's where you would go to see them. But I wasn't playing at those places then. I did get a residency at this place called. Happy Valley, which was like in Midtown, and it was one of the bigger clubs. So, so, so like later, this was more like 2006, probably, um, to 2008. There was some bigger clubs popping up, but they were kind of like in Midtown and stuff. I also think of this time as a time when people in general, but maybe especially in New York, weren't interested in club music in the same way that they were. Like when I think of New York from 2005 to 2008, I think of, uh, you know, that's peak American apparel, heyday, um, Williamsburg, yeah. Vice Magazine, yeah. hipster, indie rock. And then totally. 
that um, indie rock having a big influence on the kind of electronic music that was being made. Yeah, definitely. It was like, um, you know, DFA and very, um, uh, it was dance rocky. So it was like the rock people that were getting into dance music, um, but it wasn't ravey and it wasn't housey or techno-y. Right. Yeah. So it sounds like maybe it was only a matter of time before you as well got involved in the indie electronic scene in New York. Yeah. Basically, from from the time that I had moved there, I was hanging out with, when I got dumped three days after moving to New York, <laughs> I went through a sad phase. <laughs> and I was, um, I sort of, you know, was doing my thing. And I ran into Andy Butler in a record store. And so we had reconnected and we were like, oh, I was like, yeah, I'm not with my girlfriend anymore. I'm sad. And he was like, oh, I'm not with my boyfriend anymore. I'm sad. And so we started hanging out because we had, you know, we did always have this uh, sort of music connection. And we were like, you know, when I first moved there, this is reversing a bit, but, you know, just to give an idea, like, you know, we bonded over the music and we're like, wow, it's not cool here. Isn't that kind of suck? And I was, you know, disappointed coming from this thriving scene in San Francisco. And so, you know, we'd be like, are we dorks? We're kind of dorks here. Like, oh, my God, we're dorks. Like, who who cares? Right. Like, let's just be dorks. And we're like, yeah, who cares? Let's just be dorks. Um, the, the, the good side about being dorks at that time was that we would go record shopping and get all the good records. Like there was um, the thing, which is in Greenpoint and it wasn't as picked over as it is now. Um, Basically because people weren't looking for those records and I'd find entire crates of some old DJs, like sick record collection. And I'd be, I'd, I'd fucking, sorry, I swore. I think it's fine. Okay. And I, you know, and I'd be like, oh my God, I, you know, like I totally scored. This is crazy. Um, and so I would hang out at this record store and bring my own little turntable. I'd go in there having to eat before because then I'd get off hangry if I didn't, or like I felt like I couldn't leave and I'd go hit the red zone and go crazy. And I'd be in there for hours. I'd get sucked into a hole and then but just find so many great records for $2 each. And so that's where a lot of my record collection comes from that time as well, from when I moved to New York. So that was the really cool side about being a dork at that time. How did this progress into a, um, like you guys were friends and hanging out, how did it progress to making music together? We were just, it actually started with, we made a theme song for the, for the, for the my party at the hole. It's just like a joke, like, let's make a theme song. Um, so that was the first track we ever made together. Then we started making, you know, I was mostly just around him as he was making music. And then I started to get involved and we would make some tracks just to DJ out. And so they weren't Hercules sounding. They were they were more they they were more like underground deep housey sounding dance records so we would make stuff to like just to play out and that's how i started getting involved with 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 that and eventually like i still have some of those tracks actually um eventually we started 
he started working on an album. Yeah, eventually he started working on an album project, which was more song-based, like song songs. He was doing his thing, and I would just be hanging out at his house because we were best friends at that time. And he'd want to, like, test out what a vocal would sound like on one of the songs. So he'd be like, oh, can you just do this for me so I have, like, a placement for it? And I was super shy, and I'd make him leave the house because I didn't want to sing in front of him because I never considered myself a singer and he'd be like no it's okay just like I just need it I just want to hear it you know and so I'd make him leave and go buy cat food and then I'd text him when it was okay to come back (laughs) that's how I wound up on the demo um, that went to DFA the Hercules and Love Affair album which album was that the very first album yeah and so I wound up on I wound up on more than one track on the album, but the the one that really like landed me on the album was um, was Athena, and those were just supposed to be placement vocals. But in the end, it was decided that my vocals would stay. Yeah, I basically accidentally wound up on an album, and I never intended to be. I never set out to be in a band. Um, it just sort of fell into my lap, and so I just went with the roller coaster of it all. How long was the roller coaster? How many tours did you guys do together? How many albums? It was weird because it was like, it took, I probably had heard like, literally like, I don't even know, like 50 versions of Blind. And then when the whole album came out and Blind had been on the radio in the UK, and then it was starting to get played around Europe on the radio and that was super trippy because it was nowhere in New York to be heard and people, you know, it was this huge hype somewhere else. And I think that was happening to a lot of artists at the time uh, in the States because they would be blow up in, in Europe, but nobody heard of them in, in, you know, in their hometowns. <laughs> so that was super weird because, you know, it was, there was all this press and then that was like, trippy for me because all of a sudden I was in this project that I I wasn't really it just fell into my lap and I wasn't like really prepared to go on this whirlwind of a tour and be you know play in front of these huge crowds all of a sudden so it came time later for our first show ever and we had most bands get to play like 20 live shows at least for their friends alone you know and they get to practice and it was so hyped that our first show was at Studio B in New York and it was totally sold out. And so that was, and it was, you know, that was a big show for your first show ever. So I was scared. (laughs) I was totally freaked out. And I was like, I did this mistake of DJing before my set, which would never, I never get nervous DJing, but I was exposed. And so people would be like, oh my God, are you nervous? And then all of a sudden I start, I was like, oh my God, I'm getting scared. And I start to feel myself like turning white and forgetting to breathe. And I was like, I was like really freaking out, you know? So anyway, um, yeah, it was a lot of pressure for, for blowing up very, very fast and suddenly. Um, so that was, it was, it was pretty scary. And I felt like I kind of just got thrown in with the sharks and learn to swim that way, which was terrifying, but also probably really good for me because it 
you know, that first whole album, I have to say that I probably was more scared than having fun. But when it came to the second album of touring, I was a lot more confident and I had more experience and I wasn't, um, I learned how to deal with different situations and play in front of bigger crowds. I learned how to look people in the eye and like, I basically had to get over, I had like major stage fright Mm -hmm. for a long time. Um, And I still am very shy on stage compared to, you know, other people, but I gained so much more confidence by the end of my second tour of the second album. So I toured two albums with Hercules and then, and then um, before I left the band, Um, that's, yeah, I guess that was about maybe three years of touring. Yeah. So when, after you left the band and started on a solo career, since you had this was the way that the world knew you, right. it was also the way that they thought of you as a DJ, and maybe to an extent still do. I'm not sure how much. Um, yeah, yeah, you still feel that way. Some people do. Um, less and less, though. People are people now know me as a DJ, uh, but it took kind of years to convince people because a lot of people think that I was a singer turned DJ but it was actually the opposite because I've been DJing for you know and collecting records for so long and then but but I had no platform to be visible and it wasn't easy like it is today at that time there was still just I would say a couple handfuls of international women DJs that were really in the spotlight it was like Miss Kitten Ellen Alien Steffi so it did give me a platform and at the same time it was it was it was strange because um people would expect me to play new disco and stuff that sounded like Hercules. Right. Um where that wasn't really my background, you know. That was really hard to shed because people expected that and they'd come to see me because of that and when I didn't deliver that to them. Mm-hmm. They, some people were disappointed. Some people were like, that was so much cooler than I thought. Or some people, mm-hmm. some people, a lot of people were more like really impressed that I actually had skills because it was a time when, especially in New York, um, people weren't mixing. <laughs> and it was like, I'm going to DJ off my iPad or whatever. And that's the kind of parties that was happening. It was tricky because there was a lot of confusion of what to expect and also a lot of people were impressed that I could actually play vinyl records and that I had some skills and I wasn't just a singer face, but they didn't know that until they came to see me. Right. How how long of a process was it and what did you do to help retrain people to, to have different expectations when they go to see you play? I think that... Um, in 2008, I got to play Beats in Space, and that was like a good, a really good outlet for me to sort of get some attention as a DJ, a DJ DJ. Um, and I wasn't really, I wasn't really even aware at the time about how important that show was. I, I knew what it was, but I didn't realize like a lot of bookers were looking at this show and I'm I'm kind of glad that I didn't because I did the show last minute and I would have probably got really nervous if I knew. So I just sort of like, it was last minute. So I just showed up like, you know, the next day or something or a couple days later that week to like maybe to fill in for someone or maybe to be featured. I don't even remember, but I got to do the show. I didn't 
have too much time to think about it or get nervous, thankfully, because I didn't realize that it was so important. <laughs> and so I just played the show. And then after I played it, you know, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I played I got to play in Beats in Space. And they're like, oh, my God, I would be so nervous. And then I was like, oh, my gosh, like, oh, I hope I did good. You know what I mean? Like, and then I when I saw those reactions there, then I realized, oh, my gosh, like that was a really important show that I that I just did. And it was after that show aired that I got my first real DJ gigs. Um, my first one was in Ukraine, where I was booked really because uh because of my DJing. So, um, and they heard what I played on the show. So they knew what I played. And so that was, that was super helpful, but it did take years to shed, I think. Did to you change have an approach? Mind. Sorry. Did you have an approach with like media as well? And how, like what kinds of interviews you did, what you talked about or how you were presented? Was that a conscious part of your strategy? It wasn't really conscious. Um, I guess like before I broke out of the band, I also started my solo career. And my first track was that I had put out was Creature. And that was received quite well. Um, so that was your first solo production? That was my first solo production. And what label did that come out on? What year? It came out on Mr. International, I believe it was in 2010. Um, mm-hmm. And I'd made a video for that with um a lot of just like like my my girlfriend at the time had helped me art direct the video and then I worked with um just a lot of recommended people through um you know friends my and chosen family so it was really a labor of love um and my friends were in the video um Jonathan Turner directed it yeah, that was my first solo song. And then from there, I just started, like, kind of just started to focus more on DJing, really. It seems kind of well-timed in a way, like, you sort of had to lie, wait on the DJing thing until the moment was right. Because around 2010, 2011, the winds were definitely changing back in favor of club culture. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What what When did you do further solo releases after that? Um, I have to think, this is a long time ago. I think it was, um, the first thing that I appeared on was a Kink and Neville Watson thing outside of my own releases. After that, I believe that I finally got asked to do a remix. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of where, um, it was for, um, Need Want. And that was my first, uh, that was my first remix that was out. And from there, I sort of had to, you know, when 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 you appear as a vocalist, there's such a lack of, of, of vocalists in electronic dance music. Everyone's a producer and everyone's a DJ, but there are very few vocalists. So when you are known to be a vocalist, the amount of requests that comes into your inbox is insane because there's not enough of them, you know, and people. Did you want to keep your vocals off your own records or did you continue doing that? I would do it less and less. I would do some. I, 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 I had some for sure, but I kind of, I had a lot of pressure as coming out of Hercules to go in sort of like in a certain direction. I could have become this a bit more like one foot 
in it's not at all pop but like on like the you know it would be a more visible side and then one foot in underground because that's you know and I'm I'm totally into that that's totally that's totally cool because I feel like I could do it successfully however I really didn't want to feel pressured to go in a certain direction so I sort of laid back and I just focused on DJing and then I kind of just felt like going back to my underground roots and I didn't want to be I didn't want to be pressured to do this vocal album and I sort of took the more underground route uh, by choice and you know maybe that wasn't best for me financially but it's I had to be true to what I wanted and so I went that route and it took me a lot longer to get to feel like I was doing well and being successful is what I was doing I felt like because I was around early compared to kind of how easy it is to be visible today and like blow up on the internet it was a lot less uh, social media influenced and there wasn't as many female artists on the market um it's interesting because I feel like I feel like I'm I was I'm I'm definitely less of a hype artist and more I've been more of a slow burn because it took me so long to convince people to get to where I was. Yeah, it's just it's a it's an interesting thing and it's the juice versus the sauce. Yeah, you know that analogy. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah. The juice that lasts a couple of days in your fridge, the sauce that sticks around. Yeah, and you know I'm grateful for that, and I you know by choice I went in the direction that I wanted to go in and. I still have appreciate different kinds of music and I like, you know, I like songs with a really good vocal. I just try to be more careful about um, where I'm putting them now because it's, you know, I feel like I've made mistakes where I've, I've just, you know, I've done something just because it was an opportunity at the time and then I went, didn't really feel good about it. Like I was like, why did I do that? Um, I did it because, you know, everyone was like, you should do that. It'll be good for you. But it wasn't feeling like I, I, uh, it was me. You know, I didn't feel like I wanted to put my name on it necessarily. I would do that, um, you know, for a couple of collaborations. And I just felt like I also felt this great sense of like everyone was like pressed to like rush things out. And so I learned a lot of things along the way. And one of them was like, I'm done when I say I'm done. <laughs> I'm not going to just like push it out because that's the deadline. Um, and another thing is that, you know, because I had so many requests, it's kind of insane. I'd listen to some of them and it's like, this isn't even musical. Like, do you expect me to make the song here as a vocalist? Like, like a vocal can really take a song to another place, but like, give me something to work with, you know? And so after that, I was just like, I really had to pick and choose where I'm going to put my vocals. And I even stopped putting it on a lot of my own productions. And that was hard because when I was working with certain labels, they want to sell their records. And that's what I was known for. And they'd be like, where's the vocal, you know? And so I do it here and there, but like, you know, I'd had to just feel it. And You know, my new thing is like my newest project, which is a collaboration called Pleasure Planet, Mm -hmm. which is my new band with um, two friends of mine, Andrew Potter and Brian Hersey. And so that's sort of where I'm focusing more of my vocals is with that project. And that project's like very special to me because it's 
I've been working with them for probably like five or six years now. And we just really grew into our sound organically. We never rushed ourselves. We never were like, we need to put something out now. We just sort of would hang out and jam and with no pressure until we um, finished our EP that we just released um, this past year on on a new sub label that I that I started called uh, Self Timer, and so that project is where I've I've really like I'm sort of saving all my juice for that for that project vocally. It seems like um, although it may have been a slow burn, perhaps there the payoff of that was that you were able to build the career that made the most sense for you, and that it seems to all kind of be working. Oh yeah, no for uh, sure. Out. You have yeah. the pop ear side project yeah you're known as a dj and tour as a dj that's not i don't think that you people think of you as a, a her in indie electronic or hercules and love affair affiliate dj right you're right known in your own right yeah yeah um i'm known you, in all of the ways and at this point i'm not like i don't feel like oh i don't need i don't want the affiliation i want to be known as my own name but um i do realize that my whole path to get where I am, I am grateful for. So it's like, yeah, I was part of Hercules and it, yeah. you know, and, but now I'm this and. Right. Yeah. yeah. Tell us what this is now. So you have, <laughs> you mentioned Pleasure Planet, you mentioned the sub label. So what is yeah. it? A, so a sub label would imply there's another label. <laughs> yes, yes. So I started Firehouse uh, Recordings, which is my own label. And I started that mainly because I did feel like, I just wanted to put out my own music and be responsible for all the mistakes and pressures that I that I do and I didn't want to have to answer to anybody else is really why I started it to just be in charge of my own thing really and so I started releasing my solo stuff on Firehouse mainly and why is it called Firehouse? It's called Firehouse because I live in a fire in an old firehouse. Tell us about this space because it, it's if it's the title of your label as well, it must be an important and a part of your life. It is, yeah. It's a very special space. Um, I found it really. I was really lucky finding the space, and it's just like when you find a good space in New York, you just don't want to give it up. And so it's actually very spacious. It's got it's very lofty. It's got really high ceilings, and it's like it just feels really good in there. And a lot of people that come over like whoa I didn't know there were spaces like this still in New York and so and I know that because I came from a very very tiny tiny mm -hmm. apartment before that so I know how lucky it is that I got to score this space and uh, it's a beautiful space and I also have a studio in the basement which I can make as much noise as I want 24 7. Do you live with other artists? No, I actually live by myself. Oh, very yeah. nice. Yeah. <laughs> You're also involved in a, you have a, a crew of people in New York that you work with creatively, right? Yeah. Some peers that. Yeah. I mean, well, my Pleasure Planet partners, um, Andrew and Brian, we, my normal thing to do is I'll work on solo stuff and then I meet up with them mm -hmm. and then we work on stuff in the studio together. So those are my main, I guess I would say, that's my main collaboration right now. What else do you have going on in New York right now? 
I have um, a residency at Good Room, which has been really nice. Um, That's a fairly new club in New York, right? It's been around for a while. It's not one of the newer ones. Like it's like um, elsewhere and nowadays are like are much newer. Good Room's been around. Um, it was around the whole time output was around, um, but it was like the cooler, smaller, like it's just like more laid back. It's dark. It's not trying to be this like too much of a thing it's just like a cool dark space it's very relaxed um they made the sound system really cute there sounds really good in there they've made the lights really good in there and it's like it's just a really nice vibe I think for a real club in New York and they have just been really good to me um the people that run good room it's very like they're just so chill and it's like family vibes and they're very, very supportive of me. So I feel like it's a good home for me. And it's, um, it's everything that I sort of, sort of like in a club. It's, it's just a dark little club. It's really cute. (laughs) What are your nights called and how often do they happen? The night is after, it's like basically my label night. So it's firehouse. And sometimes I'll have a special guest I've had like Jennifer Cardini and I've had um, Ellen Alien. Sometimes it's just myself doing an extended set and I get friends to open and I get friends to play in the bad room. So it's basically, it's it's just a night that like... The bad room, by the way, is the na- it's the cute name for the second room in good room. Exactly. She's not calling it the bad Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Is it also helpful to have um, a night, a regular night, regular gig in your hometown? It is. Yeah, I like I really like having good room. It's like, you know, I feel like I have a residency in New York because as a touring DJ, when you're always playing in Europe, you really if you're gone every single weekend, you sort of feel at some point that you kind of lose connection to your home city. And it's. And I often feel that when people are like, tell me about what's going on in New York. And I'm like, "Mm, I have to ask my friends, like, guys, I've never been to this thing, but I heard it's cool, you know? And so that's, that's funny. It's an interesting thing. So that really helps me sort of feel like I am, you know, doing stuff in my hometown and I'm not just ditching it to be on the road. And I, I love New York and I like having something there going on and and, and I can get all my friends out and it's just like, it's a fun party. I play Good Room not every single month, but maybe every month and a half or every other month, I would say. And then I also play Lot Radio. I've got a residency and that's really fun for me as well because it's it doesn't have to be a, a nighttime primetime thing. And it's just like, I can play whatever I want. And it's just a nice place to hang out and have friends chill. So I've, I usually... Those are my two main things that I have going on on the regular. And then I'll do side stuff in New York as far as gigs. Yeah. So you're still keeping your ties in the local scene, but you also are branching out a little bit. I've heard about some parties upstate that you've DJed at in upstate New York. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've got... Um, what are... My friend went to a party in October when I was last in New York, and he told me that you had DJed and that you... So he and a couple friends went from the city... Um, out into the countryside and they brought sleeping bags and slept over outside but it was a property he didn't know much about he just said it was a really nice party that mostly people in New York City go travel to for the night yeah it's a it's really cool I got invited to go 
by um, a good friend of mine. He was like, oh, I really want you to come to this like forest party. Um, It's like, it's really special. It's like, it's really small. There's like, you know, maximum the first, I think the first party they had was like 40 people. Then it was 80 people. Then it was like 100 people. Then they like cap it off at 100 people because it's like a private property and they want right. to make it small. So I got to be invited to this thing and, you know, we went camping there. And the first year that I went, I just, um, I just, you know, went for fun. And the second time that I went, they had asked me to play the second time. And it was just like a really special, it was a special a little thing because the whole crew and the vibe was so um the group of people were really really cool and um the party's really special they have like their own like sound system that they built out and the whole thing is just like it's really refreshing because everything's big and everything's such a scene now and this is just like a very intimate setting in the forest which is also special when you're living in New York. So yeah, I got to play at this thing and um, it really inspired, it inspired me to, um, I was like, gosh, I really want some, I really want some nature. Like I wish, I wish I had a place of state, you know? <laughs> and then um, a group of friends of mine, there's about five of us, we all got together. We basically all went in on a place together upstate and in the same um in the same town, same neighborhood, four minutes away. And um, we bought this, we all went in and we got this really nice piece of land with a cabin. And so that's really exciting because now I've got this upstate getaway and a bunch of friends also have places in this town and around so close by as well. So we're sort of forming this really rad community we're like our friends our friends live four minutes away and then there's another friend that lives eight minutes away and there's another friend that lives you know right down the hill and then there's one that lives down our driveway yeah I'm totally gonna like change my voting to this to the town where it counts and like <laughs> change get a car and change my car insurance <laughs> um where it'll be cheaper but yeah it's awesome I feel like we're building this awesome community upstate and that's really exciting so is that the final frontier after the city? <laughs> it's a it's a really exciting frontier that I have as an option anytime I want to go. That's um, good because everyone in New York is listening very closely now to hear if that fire station is going to be open again <laughs> back on the market. Fire station, I am not giving up. 